series on Psalms, and we're going to look at about four different things in Psalm 139. Um, but we're going to start with something that I've never heard anybody else read in a worship service. So probably you haven't either. Uh, and as I read it, I'd like you to just kind of think carefully about how it fits into your theology and into your worldview. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you please be seated? There are another nine psalms written by David that ask God to bring disaster on his enemies. They're called imprecatory psalms. Uh, Most of the time we stay away from them in church services. Um, But given what Jesus said and what he did for his enemies, how are we to understand this passage? And you'll run into this a lot in psalms about hating enemies and asking God to kill them or hurt them. Do you ever feel like you want God to kill somebody? How do you feel about ISIS? Deep, deep down inside, how do you feel? Over and over in the last few years, we've heard and seen pictures of the brutality of ISIS toward ethnic and religious minorities, torturing, enslaving, raping, beheading. Horrific stories keep coming out all the time. They've murdered over 3,000 defenseless people. They have uh, caused over 3 million people to flee leave everything behind and flee. Perhaps the end of Psalm 139 captures how you feel about this. Perhaps not, but I would remind you, if it were you, or your children, or your grandchildren, I bet you'd feel a lot more strongly about it. But I'm here to tell you there's more to the story. In spite of ISIS's evil intentions, God's doing some amazing things in the Middle East. In their newsletter this month, um, the Jesus Film Project tells about a Muslim taxi cab driver in a dangerous city, they won't give you the name of the city because for security reasons, who goes to a clinic not knowing it's a Christian clinic. He's been there for years and he had to get some dental work done. And so he comes in and he sees a Bible on the um, table in the reception and he, gets, he starts getting really mad. But he decides that he needs his teeth worked on, so he, he lets the infidel dentist fix his teeth. But then afterwards, he, he, he storms out angrily. Well, one of the workers in the clinic follows him out and hands him a Jesus film DVD in his car and says, you may need this. And he takes it and flings it on top of his dash, his dashboard of his car. An hour later, He's shaking. He's terrified. He says, that DVD saved my life. Now, you're thinking, he didn't, he didn't have time to go home and watch it. How could it save his life? And he explained that he'd been stopped at a checkpoint by armed radicals 
who kill people right there on the spot if they are from a different Muslim sect, which he is. And he says, I thought I was a dead man. I had no way out. One of the guards was about to look at my papers. I knew they would shoot me. But when he saw the DVD on my dashboard, he called out to the others and said, He's a dirty Christian. Let him go. And they let me free. Now, the next morning, the cab driver came back to the clinic. He'd watched the Jesus film. He was transformed, enthusiastically talking about what had happened to him when he watched Jesus. They just called the Jesus film Jesus. And, and he said, can you give me 50 more DVDs of Jesus, please? I have 50 taxi drivers I work with. They have to see this film. And since then, he's helped to lead a number of them back in, into God's family to become followers of Jesus. Now, the brutality of Islamic radicals not only appalls us, it also appalls hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, of Muslims in the Middle East. And many are seeking answers. So when someone offers them a DVD about the great prophet Esau, that's the name for Jesus, actually most of them are eager to watch it. Now, for this taxi cab driver, he had to almost get killed to be willing to watch it, but then he was all in. And our media doesn't tell us about thousands of Muslims who are turning their lives over to Jesus. Jesus is drawing them to himself in the Middle East. In the past 50 years, worldwide, more people have been becoming followers of Jesus than ever. And that includes people in the Muslim world who, either through dreams or visions or miracles or DVDs or hardships, God's using those things to break through the barriers and win their hearts. Now, when you think of the end of Psalm 139, it is true that God hates evil. He hates it when people hurt people he loves and he loves everybody. So in that sense, the end of Psalm 139 accurately represents God's anger and the judgment evil people have earned. But that includes you and me, all of us, except that Christ already took our punishment if we believed in it. The New Testament is very clear that God's desire is that everyone be saved. And that he offers salvation freely to all, no matter how evil they have been, no matter how evil you've been. And he can even win the hearts of Muslim cab drivers who hate Christians. Psalm 139 is one of the passages that people in Jesus' day would have been thinking about, about how the Bible taught them to hate their enemies. So Jesus says, you have heard that it, heard that it was said to, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. The devil is referred to as our enemy in the New Testament. We actually are supposed to hate the devil. He's completely evil. He will, his punishment will be precisely what he deserves. But he's trying to take down as many humans as he can with him. The Bible makes it clear that the devil is actually everyone's enemy. People often treat us like they are our enemy. But that's because they've been deceived by the true enemy. The Apostle Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light 
of the gospel and of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why we sing like the blind man that Jesus healed. I once was blind, but now I see. We don't believe in Jesus because we're smarter than other people. There are brilliant people who don't believe. There are also brilliant people who do believe. We believe because the Holy Spirit took the veil away. It's a supernatural thing. At the last day of judgment, as we were singing uh, earlier, when the veil comes off of everyone and everyone stands in the presence of God, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we always pray for people who treat us as enemies. Once we were enemies of God, now we're part of His family. We pray for them to join His family. We plead for God to bless them. We, for the Spirit to, to show them Jesus, take off the veil. It always takes the power of the Holy Spirit for anyone to understand the gospel. Paul writes, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people thought that God was going to come and destroy His enemies. Instead, God comes and dies for His enemies, totally unexpected. He does it so that they can be forgiven and join His family, and that is how much God loves His enemies. So we always need to keep that in mind. No matter what horrible things people do, whenever we read things like the end of Psalm 139. Okay. Would you please open either an app or a Bible to Psalm 139? We're going to look at the first two thirds of it, which is very encouraging and upbeat, by the way. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. Everyone is created with a deep desire, a need to be known. Now, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God exists in a fellowship. He doesn't have the need to be known. He is known. And that loving fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is completely satisfying to them. Even so, God desires to be known by you. And part of being made in His image is that we desire to be known. The passage, this passage is promising you that God knows you. Now, about this time you might be thinking, maybe that's not so good. Because I'm kind of a mixed bag. I complain. I get angry. I judge people. I'm proud. I lust. 
I actually avoid becoming completely transparent with people precisely because I do not want them to know me deeply. I want them to love me, and I know that if they knew what I was really like, they probably wouldn't. So is it really good news that God knows me so well? Yes. If someone just knows your facade and loves it, do they really love you? He knows all of your weaknesses and failings and still sees tremendous ways that you can become like Jesus, love people, and be a huge blessing in their lives. He knows you, and he still wants you to know him and be part of his family. Now, just a quick parenthesis. Since in this life, it says we get the Spirit as a down payment, not the full experience of God, but a taste. And because it's only a taste, we were really created to also be, we are social creatures, and we need to be known not only by God, we also need to be known by each other. And so we just always like to keep encouraging you to make the time to be in a small group. If you're not in one already, talk to Pastor Ben, get into a small group. And the people that are in small groups in this church, by and large, they just they love their small groups, so you, you will never regret it. Okay, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And we've been singing about Sheol several times during this series. It can mean the grave or death, kind of the opposite of heaven. It can mean where wicked people go when they die. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Remember when we looked at Psalm 73, those of you who were here? God, it says, Thou dost hold my right hand. God never lets go. Verse 11, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalm 139 promises that God is with you and will be with you. What, do you remember which Psalm... David says that in a different way that's very, very popular and well-known. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. It's actually one of the most comforting things in life that we can know. If we just know that God is with us, sometimes we can even sense and palpably feel His presence. But God is always with you. Always. Whatever you do, wherever you go, he promises not to abandon you. Have you ever been abandoned by someone that was important to you? Now, I didn't watch American Idol during all of its seasons, um, but recently it had its last season, and I happened to watch the one episode where Kelly Clarkson sang her popular hit, Piece by Piece. And I recommend, if you don't know it, go online and listen to it. Now, Kelly Clarkson, for the very first season of American Idol, she won. And she's gone on to be a superstar. Um, and part of the song, Piece by Piece, is about Kelly Clarkson being abandoned by her father when she was six years old. It has lyrics like, I traveled 1,500 miles to see you, begged you to want me, but you didn't want to. Also about 
how being abandoned burns holes in her. Now, the other part of the song is more redemptive. It's, it's about her hus- how her husband is really an excellent father who will never, ever abandon their daughter. Her daughter will never wonder about her worth. She will never wonder if she's loved. And actually, her husband's love and reliability have kind of helped this, this, this story tell it. Now, that particular evening, it was an incredibly moving song. Kelly had trouble getting through it. She was crying. The whole audience was crying. I was crying. Um, because issues of abandonment go very deep. And I know some of you were abandoned by a parent. Some of you were abandoned by a spouse. Some of you have been abandoned by one of your children. Some by a close friend. And it, and it leaves holes in our soul. God is the excellent Father who will never, ever leave you because He loves you. He won't abandon you. He went through hell so that we could be together. Nothing will be able to separate you from His love. He promises that, both here and in the future. And He can and does repair and eventually fill the holes others leave us. So, If someone left you and left holes in you, ask them to fill you with the Holy Spirit and and begin to fill those holes up with with Christ. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand I awake. part that we'll consider today is saying that God's wisdom and His understanding and His knowledge are vast. He already knows how your life will turn out. He knows what you will do, when you will do it. He's actually planned our lives for us. Now, does that mean that our choices are not real? Well, one of the things that it means when it says God's thoughts are not our thoughts and they're far above us is that there are things that God understands that we don't. There are things that are mysteries to us. And one of those mysteries is how our choices can be real and make a difference, and yet God has planned out our days for us. And theologians have tried to explain this and argue about it for centuries. And it's a good thing to study and look at all of the things that the Scripture says because it can give you tremendous confidence. But at the end of the day, it is a mystery how all of this fits together. But God does have an individualized plan for you. It's super important. And the plan he has for me is not the plan he has for you. Look at the person next to you. Go ahead, look. Just take a look. Anybody, just take a look at the person next to you. Some of you won't look. Wow. Can't make me look. I'm not looking. Uh-uh. No way. I don't care. It's instructions. Don't take direction. That, the plan for you is not the plan for them either, even if you're married. It's a different plan. 
And his purpose for your life is wrapped up in his plan for your life. God promises you tremendous purpose. He's designed your life with all these important things for you to do. Maybe multiple purposes. He, they're meant to give you opportunities. So opportunities where you can be really heroic or, or wise or just make astounding choices. But you're going to pass some incredibly significant milestones. Isn't that great to know? That's really great to know. Unless you don't like how this plan is working out for you so far. See, God's not only designed you physically. He planned who your parents would be and your siblings. Which country you would be born in and when you would be born. Where you'd go to school. Who you would marry and who your kids would be. Again, does that mean you did not make choices? No. Every one of your choices are real and significant. It's a mystery. But through your choices, God has worked out His plan. Through your, your parents' choices, through your employer's choices, through your adult children's choices, through your spouse's choices, God has been working out His plan for your life. So, what if you were abandoned by a parent like Kelly Clarkson? What if you were abused physically or emotionally? What if you married someone who betrayed you? What if you were born poor and never got past it? Or your adult kids made horrible choices. <coughs> Excuse me. And those horrible choices have had a dramatic impact and totally changed your life. What if you don't really like how God has planned to work in your life so far? Whenever we go through painful and difficult seasons, it's usually hard for us to be truly pleased with God's plans. We don't like pain. We're not supposed to like pain or evil. The Apostle Paul suffered a lot. He actually became so mature that he rejoiced in his suffering. Not because he was a masochist, but he was able to look past it to what God would bring out of it. He says in Romans 5, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that life's difficulties would develop character and that God's love would be poured into him. I love that phrase. That's a dramatic, wonderful God's love poured into him. Part of the reason we don't like God, how God's plan is working out is that what we think is important and what God thinks is important are often different. Sometimes our values aren't lined up with God's values. So, so what do we value? If you were to think of our society... All the, you know, world around us. What are some of the things that the world values? Good looks, being loved, family, friends, success, wealth, and a lot of success, wealth, and a lot of stuff, health, long life, pleasure, a sense of humor, athletic ability, being smart, a meaningful career with enjoyable work, respect, maybe even fame or power. Am I leaving anything out? Pretty much what, we're all, what our culture raises us to believe is important. Do those align with God's values? Now, most of those things are good things. And God gives us good things. Every good gift is from Him. But are they what He thinks is most important? Because if so, then wouldn't you, it'd be perfectly reasonable for you to be upset with God if 
you were born into a dysfunctional family or if you lost all of your net worth to some Ponzi scheme. Here's one way I find helpful to describe God. First, he, he wants a wonderful and loving relationship with you. He wants you to know him. Then he wants you to have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. He, the, the, he wants your character to become like Jesus. And he wants you to do this in his way, being trusting him, obeying him, not just doing it with whatever isn't right. I mean, he actually wants another kind of fruit, results, but things like you loving people and helping people and making oftentimes an eternal difference as they come to know God and become like Jesus. See, that taxi driver was living in horrible conditions of fear and people being randomly killed. He almost died, but God orchestrated everything to work for his good. God used the brutal, evil situation which God hates. But God used it to win his heart. There's a wonderful older couple in this church, very dear to me. I won't tell you their names, but they've been through a lot of health issues in recent years, long-term suffering. So I asked them about it and how they were handling it, and they gave me a remarkable response. They know that God is using it in their lives to grow them into His glory. And they said they wouldn't change a thing. Now, that didn't mean that they never asked God for relief. We prayed together for relief, and now they're experiencing more relief, but for many years they weren't. But they talked about how close the suffering had made them to God. suffer. Our suffering either comes between us and God or it presses us close to God. And often close to the closest people to us. Look one last time at verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139 states clearly that you were made by God. You're not an accident. You're not the result of random and impersonal chemical and physical interactions in the universe. I think that's really good to know. That can be really encouraging. There's a plan to how you were made. Great to know. Unless you're not all that happy with how you're coming out. ability or fame or being smart or successful. And even if we are happy with how that's turning out, it's temporary. Ask some of the people here in their 90s. Take the next few years. What about you? Are you happy?
as you feel let down by her neighbor. You wish she was smarter, healthier, better looking, taller, faster, more coordinated, less prone to depression or had a metabolism that just burned off those calories. Do you feel how God feel that how God made you is keeping you from experiencing a great life where you would feel loved and have a profound and meaningful purpose in God says to you, I made you just like you are for good reason. First and foremost, I want you to know me and be loved by me. I also want to loving and beautiful on the inside and that will last forever. I want you and I to work side by side loving others and helping them. Making a difference that will last forever. I have a purpose for you that will be more fulfilling than anything the world has to offer. Will you please trust me and work with me and let me idolizes the super talented, the super beautiful, the super successful, the super rich, and the super famous. And many have come to believe that unless a life has at least a minimum of those standards, a minimum of talent and beauty and success and wealth, and that it's, it's just not worth living. And God says that just isn't true. George Will has been a conservative columnist for the Washington Post for decades. And at times he's written powerfully against abortion. He writes about uh, how Roe versus Wade inaugurated an era of casual destruction of unborn babies and how this era, quote, has coincided not just coincidentally with the full garish flowering of the baby boomers' vast sense of entitlement, which encompasses an entitlement exemption from nature's mishap into a perfect baby. So today, science enables what the ethos ratifies. The choice of killing children is Down syndrome before birth, unquote. When parents in America do prenatal testing, 90% of unborn babies with Down syndrome are killed. George Will explains that families with Down syndrome children will almost invariably testify to the value and the blessing of their Down syndrome child in their family. Do you know families with normal children that'll say that? Yes, they also talk about the difficulties and how it changed their whole their whole plan for life. Down syndrome people have a great purpose, but they don't meet the threshold of the success and the talent and the God says that's the values of this world. Down syndrome people so often are very loving. They they improve the lives of many. They're often heroically brave as they go through life. And George Will knows what he's talking about because his son that's forty four has down syndrome. may have 
on someone. This week when my tire blew out, I was at the uh, fire at the uh, service at the, at the gas station, so that was really nice. Um, and when one of the mechanics helped me, uh, I offered to pray for him. He, he didn't take me up on it or, or give me any kind of prayer request. Often people do if I ask them that. You just never know. Now, when the Christian from the clinic boldly pursued the Muslim taxi driver and gave him a Jesus DVD that he threw onto his dashboard, he had no idea that that simple act would save the cabbie's life and be used by God to bring him into God's family. He made an eternal difference. It's tough to feel good about how God made us or His plan for our life if we share the values of our culture. If we don't have God's values way above them. However, when we agree with God that what matters most is is knowing Him and experiencing His love, it's becoming like Jesus, is loving and serving others, helping them, we become free to deeply appreciate this life. No matter how God made you or what family He put you in or what... Deeply appreciate this life with all the gifts that God gives us that are just not what our society is looking for. We become appreciative of this life, all that God has done for us and all that He still wants to do. Pastor Ben, would you lead us?